Welcome to episode 51 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our second to last episode in our Read the Whole Bible in a Year journey, looking at Hebrews and the Peters. But before that, I believe we have a couple of questions. So this question um, came to us on Sunday this week, and it was, what does Paul think was lacking in Christ's afflictions that he needs to fill in Colossians 1.24? Yeah, so Colossians 1.24 in my NIV reads this way. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I don't read that as Paul saying anything is lacking in Christ's afflictions, but that something is lacking in his flesh regarding Christ's afflictions. In Paul's flesh. Yes, Paul's flesh. So this is Paul saying that he has not yet um, become what he fully needs to become. He's mm-hmm. not finished with his his development and growth spiritually. Um, he has not fully grabbed hold of um, the... Well, or just, I think, maybe straightforwardly, he just knows he hasn't suffered as much as Jesus has. That's true, yeah. For the for the life of the church. And I think that he, as we were talking about, I think in Second Corinthians, Paul fully expects to suffer a great deal for the sake of the gospel. And so, I mean, I think that what you said... Uh, that was you prophetic. Said was, yeah. What you said was true, too. But I think, yeah, it's just, he just knows he hasn't suffered as much as Christ himself has, and, yeah. and he knows he will. Uh, we did receive another question. Uh, and this is from a little further back. Um, it is, let's see here. We're regarding David's sins with Bathsheba. Um, one of the sins was, or this person was reading a Bible study and it says, they listed one of his loose, uh, one of his sins as his loose morals and lack of restraint with eight to 10 wives and all his concubines. My question is at this time, was this really a sin? Wasn't that common during that period? Which I know just because something is common doesn't mean it isn't a sin. But also in the Bible study, uh, the question is given in Leviticus. It talks about adulterers both being put to death. Why didn't this happen to David and Bathsheba? Is it just because he was king and she had his heir? Or was it because no one wanted to confront the king, the anointed one? Was it because Uriah wasn't there to bring the charges? So yes, I mean the questioner I think is right to say that it was it was obviously more common in ancient Iron Age Israelite culture than it is in ours. <laughs> Far more common, in fact. I think that the Bible, the Old Testament, never comes out and and just baldly says that this is wrong. But we know that often the Bible does not just come out and say that something was wrong. Sometimes it does. And the David and Bathsheba story is actually a notable exception to that rule because it says, and the thing David had done displeased Yahweh. Whereas, you know, Moses' murder of the Egyptian or Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter, there is no line that says, and the thing they did displeased Yahweh, although obviously it did. Uh, and so I think that multiple marriage is in a similar vein. And I think the narratives actually do kind of tip their hand to that because every time a character does take more than one wife, you know, it the the narratives then highlight the problems that come along with that, the tensions in the family, you know, issues between the siblings later on. Like, I mean, it's all it always has bad cascading effects. I think that culturally, you know, the reason why that happened 
was if you were a wealthy enough man to support multiple wives. And so there is a kind of a class socioeconomic uh, dimension to this. You know, David obviously was on top of the mountain, you know, king of the hill for that period of Israel's history. So he had plenty of resources to, to support all these wives. And you can kind of, it's almost like each time he attains a wife, it's like he's attained another level of like prominence. <laughs> uh-huh. you that know, that in, is the way the story reads. society that is he's kind of leveled up. Reads. Whereas Bathsheba then would be the last one, but also like mm. the one that sort of knocks the stuffing out of that whole pretension to to his greatness or is whatever else. Is she the else. last one? I think there's some debate as to whether Abishag yeah. is a full-fledged wife or not. Okay. Or if she's, I mean, she probably was if she was alone with the king, mm-hmm. but I don't think she was a, uh, well, anyway, it yeah. seems like she might have been more of what we think of as like a caretaker or a yeah. nursemaid. Yeah. Um, but Bathsheba would be the last wife that David takes in kind of the prime of his life. Maybe yeah. we can, we can and say. And has a child with. Right. And, uh, uh, and so I would just, I think I would just say all of that, that I think the Old Testament is telling us that it is not... It is not ideal that it's a it's a uh, not capitulation. What's the word I'm thinking of? Accommodation to kind of the the facts on the ground, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked about this, I think, maybe a week ago or two weeks ago, that you know, with slavery and the letter of Philemon, that we see Paul. There is some accommodation, like it doesn't just come out and say, "So get rid of all the slave," you know, not get rid of all the slaves, but get rid of slavery itself. But Paul is telling this particular slaveholder to free this particular slave. And the implication, the unsaid implication is, well, why wouldn't this be true for all of other Philemon slaves? And so I think it's a, it is a similar kind of dynamic at work, you know, when it comes to marriage that we see this in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, I mean, obviously yeah. it's very clear, you know, that uh, we're to take a single spouse or at least church leaders are only supposed yeah. to have. So the only spouses. time it's specifically addressed is in first Timothy, if I'm not mistaken, and elders are supposed to be husbands of one wife, right? right. And it's not supposed to be. And so you could draw again, I think easily the implication from that, that that is the preference. This is something the church wrestles with in other parts of the world where, where it's still alive. It's still common. Issue. Yeah. yeah. And well, oh, Oh, and I think maybe the other thing I would say is and we've we talked about a lot, especially early on in the Old Testament, that marriage and the laws around marriage and some of the stories around husbands and wives, like, yes, they're about what they're about, but they're also about Yahweh's relationship with Israel. That's a major, major motif of the covenant relationship in the Torah itself and then in Hosea and, and Isaiah and some of the other prophets. And so I think there is this sense as well that, you know, Israel wanted to be, wanted to have multiple husbands. I mean, that's how it's portrayed in Ezekiel, you know, in some other places, Hosea, and that's wrong, <laughs> you know. And so, again, you get to the New Testament, and it's like it's very clear that, you know, God's people are, are meant to be married to him and him alone. And I think you see that shift in Israelite culture itself. We don't see a lot of multiple marriages after the exile. Now, I mean just on a human level, I think that probably be, is because they were very poor. And yes. so nobody could afford Ford. multiple wives unless that is part of what's happening with the whole Ezra foreign wives thing. That could be. Which I more and more I'm beginning to, to suspect really? that, that's, that that might okay. be part of what's happening there. Uh, but anyway, so just all of that to say, I think that the, the Bible study wasn't wrong to say that that was ultimately sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or at least it's not... 
you know, it's an accommodation to the realities of a sinful fallen world, right? It's not, uh, was David, was each, what you know, was it wrong necessarily, or was David doing it from a wrong heart? No, not necessarily. Again, it was done if you had the resources, you know. Um, and we also know, unfortunately, in that day and age, women didn't have a lot of social mobility on their no, own. They did not. And so the only way for... Uh, yeah, for really for women to to be supported, to be able to have any kind of an economic life or whatever else was if they were attached to a husband. Mm-hmm. We wrinkle at that now, I think rightly, but that was just the reality 2,500 years ago, 2,700 yeah. years ago. I think with the Leviticus piece, yeah, I think it's as simple as nobody's going to be stoning the king to death. Well, <laughs> I also, one of the things that we noted when we were in Leviticus is that just because the law allowed for someone to be put to death for something did not mean right. that that was the common it practice. Mean it was always enforced that way. I do not think that every example of adultery in ancient Israel ended in death. Right. Um, I think that that again, that being the that places the power in the aggrieved person's hands, and I think mm-hmm. that that is a uh, a a good precedent law wise for us to have. But I do not think, I imagine the social pressures to not say, yes, let's prosecute this to the full extent of the law were pretty severe. And yes, I do think that comes off the table for the king. But I, I don't think if, for example, one or an average soldier had committed adultery, the likelihood is that he would have been killed. Right. Um, well, I think it would depend on whose wife he slept with. Well, you know what? That right there is a fair point. <laughs> if Uriah had slept with one of David's wives, they would have killed him. Maybe I mean David. David is a pretty forgiving character in the uh, true, biblical story. <laughs> David killed Uriah because it's, David slept with Uriah's wife. Yeah. Um, and if anyone is questioning the idea of accommodations being made in the Bible rather than outright condemnations, we actually do have Jesus talking about this. Mm-hmm. So when he talks about divorce, um, Moses had allowed for an easier form of divorce than Jesus said was right, and he says he allowed it because of your hard hearts. Not because right. that was God's desire. And so we have inside the Bible evidence that this accommodation right. for the fallenness of people is sometimes made. Yeah. And um, I think about the pastoral issues that you and I deal with. Let me tell you, not having to deal with, oh, I'm a man that has four wives and now I'd like to become a Christian. What am I supposed to do? I like not having to deal with questions like that. That is a, that is a tough That is a tough one. Speaking of accommodation, let's talk about the letter to the Hebrews. <laughs> Speaking of accommodation, eh? Um, so the letter to the Hebrews, and Clayton and I kind of referenced this a little bit, and I don't... This is the last letter of Paul's that we're discussing. <laughs> That's what... Clayton feels very strongly that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. I would like to believe that... Uh, uh, Priscilla, one of the early teachers of the church, wrote Hebrews, and that's why it's anonymous, is because it was authored is by a woman. Is there any positive evidence for that? No, just my just my wishful thinking. Just your whimsy? I fully acknowledge that, yeah. <clears throat> I'm just checking. I don't have very much but evidence for my is, thought either, aside from the first is, four centuries of Christian testimony. It is anonymous, and it's not addressed to anyone in particular, so it is a, it's peculiar in that way. I think some strong strong lines of argument to say that Hebrews started its life as sermon notes, mm-hmm. or as not as a letter, but then was packaged and yes. kind of sent around as a Can letter. Can I tell you what I think this is? Sure. So we see that we see referenced in Paul's letters often that he has he goes from place to place and he preaches, and he will refer to his preaching and teaching in his letters, but he doesn't re-give them, mm-hmm. right? But the idea is that it is a a a packaging of the gospel, a presentation of the gospel. And 
I don't, and they, this may not be Paul's presentation of the gospel, but that is what Hebrews is. It is, mm-hmm. it is not the advanced version that Paul is, is referencing or, or giving in his letters where he's assuming you already have knowledge of the gospel. This is a great way to present the gospel to a Jewish audience um, that would already be familiar with the Old Testament that is taking them and introducing them to who Jesus is. And that may not be from Paul's sermons. The early church thought that it was, um, but that we don't know where that tradition came from. Well, and it's obviously, I mean, written by probably a, a Judean person, you know, deeply steeped in the yes. Old Testament to probably a Judean majority church mm-hmm. who would understand all these references. Yes. Because it is. This is not, this is not for Gentiles no, that is, don't know the Old Testament. deeply, deeply. Uh, threaded throughout with re- references, allusions, and yes. quotes well, to, one of the, to the Old Testament. One of the things that makes that significant, so I remember being told and encouraged when I was at Southside, um, there was this thing where we took one day a month for a spiritual retreat, and, you know, each pastor. And I was given an encouragement to read through Hebrews, and every time there is, my study Bible gave an Old Testament reference to go and read the Old Testament reference, the whole chapter. Because the you get a lot more out of it when you when you do that, and our study Bibles are miracles that way. They help mm-hmm. us to draw attention to most, not all. I'd say sixty to seventy percent of the the I mean direct references you get, allusions you don't. Right. Um, but um, it's it's full of Old Testament references, and if you don't don't take the time if you don't know your old testament really well and you and or you don't take the time to look them up you miss out on a lot of the richness of what is happening in the book of hebrews and i i think that if you dear reader have some time in the next week and you want to take hebrews and and do that i think you will find it very profitable you know and it, and it seems like it's addressed to people who yeah were judean people had become Christians and now because of some manner of persecution, you know, are, are facing pressure to, you know, either leave the Christian community they've joined or if they haven't like physically changed their meeting location, you know, to, to renounce this. I mean, I don't know if they would have used the phrase this new faith, but to renounce that and and renounce Jesus as Messiah and kind of return to the fold. There's Uh, a, there's a fun word. Do you want to hear the fun word? Apo synagogue is the word for being kicked out of the synagogue that the, the Christians were. And that's, we see that happening in the Gospels, right? Or talked about in the Gospels and in Acts. Um, and it does seem like that had happened to these. Um, and the Old Covenant is directly addressed in Hebrews. And that does not happen too often in the New Testament. Um, I don't know if you ha- what you have on your mind for us to talk about, but I think it's chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is, you know, everyone, when we talk about Hebrews, we talk about, we, we hear a lot about one and two, you know, the talking about Jesus in a variety of ways that is, is just really, really powerful and good. And we think about Hebrews 11, which is one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament. Hebrews 10 gives us a way of interpreting the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And it's not, I don't think, often enough thought of. And so starting with verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Remember, law means Torah, right? It's referring to the Old Testament, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, not ha- would they not have stopped being offered? 
For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in my the early part of my Christian life, the impression that I had was that the Old Testament sacrifices forgave your sins, but then when you committed new ones, you had to make new sacrifices. And that, that was the that the, the actual forgiveness was done by the sacrifices themselves. What Hebrews 10 tells us is no, they were pointing forward to Jesus's death. And forgiveness could be found by entering into the covenant, but that's because Jesus's death goes in both directions, right? It, it reaches back as much as it reaches forward. So we who live 2,000 years later benefit from it, but the forgiveness that was found in the old covenant came from the, the forgiveness that was made by Jesus, not just the death of bulls and goats. And I think that that's really important and really helpful. So 2 Peter, um, in, for, one, for one, 2 Peter is one of the most contested books by the early church. When you see examples of the, the canon that was made early on, 2 Peter was one that... Meaning like the list of books the list that are of, accepted yes. as scripture. Yeah, the list of... Sorry. Um, okay. But 2 Peter was one that they really wrestled with because it was a little bit later mm-hmm. and the, the pedigree wasn't as clear that it came from Peter himself. And there's some thing, some language in it that is a little different than language that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And so some question about, was this another well-meaning Christian? Not trying to lie to everybody, but mm-hmm. but it was common practice then to, if you were a, uh, to make this to make this more contemporary, if you were a Christian that, that was mentored by Billy Graham, but you were not well known, then you might put out after he was gone uh, a sermon or something and put Billy Graham's name on it, not as a way of lying, but as saying you're part of that tradition. Mm-hmm. Right? Or we think of that as like, what school did you go to now? Mm-hmm. You know, a Harvard grad, right. you know, it's claiming a name that gives credibility that isn't considered deceptive. Mm-hmm. It is today the way they did it. But right. I think Peter wrote Second Peter, but there was some question about it. And it's, it's First Peter focuses a lot on suffering. Mm-hmm. That is the primary, uh, uh, primary focus of it. And it seems like Second Peter is much more worried about the the about false teaching and about the end, mm-hmm. about the coming of the Lord. And so in those ways, I'd say that they're they're different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you've been through difficult times, First Peter is a, a good book. At the end, he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, probably the author of the gospel. Uh, Peter isn't in Babylon. He's in Rome. And so Babylon is a coded reference to the city of Rome. That'll be important next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I Next week's going to be something. So just remember that. <laughs> Babylon equals Rome. What's great about Peter is he's very... Um, he even, in Second Peter, he refers to Paul. And he even mm-hmm. makes reference to the fact that Paul can be hard to understand. Yes. Amen. Um, <laughs> what we get with Peter is we get a down-to-earth concrete kind of person talking plainly about the faith. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean there's nothing that is is difficult to understand in Peter. It just means that if you are a person who prefers not to have your head in the in the clouds, you know, to to be concrete, James is a book you'll probably like and 1 Peter is a book you'll probably like. They're both very down-to-earth, clear, concrete mm-hmm. books. And um, I think that's helpful. Yeah. And one of the 
I mean, there's obviously a lot, but uh, one of the significant things in Peter is in chapter 2, verse 9, when he uh, is talking about those who rejected the gospel, but then he refers to the church and says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just the significance of, I think this is, this is, Hebrews maybe does it, I'm not sure, but like this is a pretty big kind of change in Peter saying that the entire family of God is a priesthood now, you know, which kind of harkens back to Exodus 19 before Sinai and and God tells Moses that they're all all going to be a a, a nation of priests, right? A nation of royal priests that obviously didn't work out because of the golden calf and other things. They had to have a designated you know the the levites and then within the levites they had to have a designated priestly family and then within the priestly family they had to have you know it just you kept seeing this kind of narrowing down i think partly just as an expression of the idea that you know none of them are perfect you know and this is not as hebrews said this thing is the shadow you know the the levitical priesthood was a shadow it wasn't the reality now that jesus has come as the permanent high priest and purified all of the people it's like now we all can kind of resume the priestly function that that Israel was meant to have, and that ultimately I think Adam and Eve were meant to have. I mean, they're they're I think set up to to be priestly figures way back in the garden, you know, in terms of worshiping the Lord and and uh, making Him known, you know, mm-hmm. to the rest of the creation. And so I think that's just the the priestly thread is one I think that we maybe I don't want to say we downplay it, we just don't track with it. I think as often why not because we're not quite sure what to do with it and i think priests make us think of catholics yes i think actually that's <laughs> primarily the, the issue and uh and so that makes you know that can just give people some misgivings <laughs> but it's important you know and i mean hebrews talks a lot about you know especially the priesthood of jesus and i think then you know the priesthood of believers mm-hmm. i mean this is an important passage for martin luther and the reformation just this idea that you know the the uh, the power of the Christian life wasn't only meant to be held by the clergy, mm-hmm. you know, but was available to all believers, you know, who, yeah. who would accept that. So it's First Peter three, verse eighteen and following. Oh, yeah, for yeah. Christ also suffered once for sins. Uh, so we're going to discuss. We want to discuss First Peter three. Um, it's kind of an awkward passage or an odd passage, starting in verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went to ma- and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people ate and all were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Okay. What's that mean, Pastor Ben? So it seems to be referring to a tradition that we don't have elsewhere in the Bible, but I think existed in Second Temple Judaism outside of the Bible, that Jesus was busy while he was dead, like that he went to the underworld. So you're not referring to a had interactions with the with the with the spirits there. You're not referring to a tradition that was ancient in the time that this letter was written. You're referring to a tradition that was present in the time this letter was written but is now ancient and we don't have it. yes i'm sorry okay. yeah, yeah i meant that there seems to have been you know a belief 
in the church that Jesus, well, you know, he wasn't just dead in the ground, but he actually went to mm-hmm. the underworld. And we talked about that way, way at the beginning of the podcast and the references to Sheol, you know, start cropping up in Genesis. And that that's not when you, and, and you know, it's all here. Read it. When you read it, <laughs> the impression you get is that it is not the straightforward sort of heaven and hell you know, idea that we may have, but especially in the Old Testament, that their understanding was that everybody went to the underworld. There were a few exceptions, but almost everyone went to the underworld, the realm of the dead, however you want to put it, you know, Sheol. And that was not, it was not always a place of punishment and torture, but it also wasn't necessarily a happy place either. So like early on in Genesis, it's pretty neutral. It just talks about being gathered to your father's or Jacob laments that he's going to go down to the grave or Sheol, you know, in sorrow. But then in the Psalms or Ecclesiastes kind of portrays this idea. And there are multiple Psalms that basically make the point, look, once we're dead, we can't praise you. Nobody does anything when they're dead. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, oh, that's, I mean, makes sense. You mm-hmm. know, you're dead, but it, it, it seems to be, you know, the appeal to God only makes sense, you know, if if their idea of the underworld is it's just kind of you're just inactive, you're stuck in this place. Thus, it's a prison, right? And so, I think that that is what Peter's referring to. And Second Peter and Jude, which we'll talk about next week, refer to another tradition that only appears in those two places in the New Testament: this idea that there are angelic spirits. That's not true. I guess Revelation references the abyss, and then the, the demons in the Gospels talk about being sent to the abyss. I don't. I think First Peter, and there's that. This is one of those people have different readings. I don't think Peter here is talking about angelic spirits in prison. I think he's referring to human spirits in Sheol. Yes, who are hearing the gospel preached and being released by Jesus if they accept it would be the. Well, I guess that's. That's not clear either. Some people think that it's a proclamation in terms of just, ha ha, I won, you're all, you've never, re- you've never heard that? No! I don't believe that. I've just heard other, I've just heard other people propose that that's what's happening. It's just a declaration of victory, not like a, here's the gospel, accept it and you can be saved. <laughs> I can, I'm trying to imagine who Because they're already dead, Clayton. Who people would who come to know, dead. who would come to know God and think that his plan <laughs> is to die to save everyone who is still living or future to be born and then go and brag about it to those who cannot be saved. But I I have read that. That also might be more for the people who think that these are angelic spirits. Okay. It's like he's announcing to them over angelic spirits. Okay. And that I could see. If you are a demon who followed Lucifer, I imagine at some point you had to find out from Jesus himself what he's done. But uh, you know, so I think this is in some ways that's reflected in the creeds, right? In the line, like he descended to the dead and he descended to the grave. Like the, it's this, you know, it's not clearly, I mean, I suppose one could say Pete, Peter's talking about it, you know, so it is indeed scriptural, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not said in the gospels or anything like that. We're not given any insight into that. There are some in the uh, Greek Orthodox, Orthodox tradition, you know, their icons of Easter are, I mean, they have just icons of Jesus coming out of the tomb. But then they also have what what is called the harrowing of hell, which is this, which is what Peter, I mean, their interpretation of what Peter's describing, that Jesus is is standing in the empty tomb. The There are tombs at his feet that are burst open. The yep. devil's chained up, you know, and, and he's he is, he is them lifting up. the people. Sometimes it's Adam and Eve. Sometimes it's other figures from the Old Testament. But he's he's lifting these people out of the graves. And I mean, it, it's it's a powerful, powerful image. I mean, that's 
the I'm a fan of Eastern Orthodox theology. I'm not an Eastern Orthodox Christian on purpose, mm-hmm. um, but the 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 way that they think about and discuss theology has always appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm with them on this. I think mm-hmm. that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's he's proclaiming to those who were covenant members, um, faithful covenant members of that are in 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 the afterlife or in the general dwelling place of the dead. And through some means that we are not given specifically is rescuing some or all of them. I mean, how wonderful is it? You know, you think about those who who died from natural disasters or just the awfulness of the world thousands of years before Jesus was born. I mean, it feels like something our God would do to go and give them a chance to, to hear the gospel and respond. Um, that's something a human can't do, right? We can only proclaim the gospel to those who are alive while we are alive. Right. But he can go to those who have already passed and proclaim the gospel to them. I'm not certain of that. This isn't a passage that I feel like can give us that certainty, but mm-hmm. that feels like the kind of thing the God of mercy and love does. Yeah. Well, and it, and it would just seem to, it seems to me that once you are talking about the afterlife, time gets funny kind of kind of funny <laughs> you can't uh you couldn't see it but ben just did a fantastically wobbly thing with his head that so was like, entertaining you know who all was there when jesus went down to the underworld it's a good Ooh. question we'll see i suppose we'll find out i'm not gonna be upset <clears throat> if uh, i get to heaven and there's somebody who never heard the gospel and they and god found a way to bring them to eternal mm-hmm. life uh, despite and, never, and you know, to be clear, this is we're speculating. We're now. speculating. We're, we're this is not this the out senior from... pastor of Calvary teaching. Uh, <laughs> what Peter? I will saying. not be upset if that's the case. Yeah, but so Peter's saying all this in service to the point of saying, you know, that these people weren't saved by the by the ark; they died because of their disobedience. But these eight people were brought safely through the water. And then he makes this pivot to baptism. So in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, does it correspond to the flood or does it correspond to the ark? The, fl- the flood. In I mean, the NIV reads so, differently. In okay. it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes this baptism. Water. Okay, so the NIV makes it maybe well, a little I mean, us. correctly or not, I've not looked at the Greek of this passage maybe ever. And so I didn't well, realize there was a difference. So he's just... That he's saying that that for the people that Jesus had to go preach to, the floodwaters were bad. <laughs> they killed them. Right. But now <laughs> the floodwaters have become the waters of baptism, which mm-hmm. are the waters of new creation, uh, which is, I mean, just a powerful, yes, a powerful thing. And they that has happened because Jesus has taken away the sting of death. He's raided the realm of the dead, busted open all the doors, and nobody has to be stuck there anymore. And so when Peter says uh, baptism now saves you, I think he's he's not saying you're saved by being baptized. I think the point he's making is the flood is a good thing now. <laughs> like instead of it be, the waters being an expression of wrath and punishment, these waters are an expression of the, of the life and the new covenant in Jesus, I think mm-hmm. is, is the point that he's making. Interestingly, the Greek does not have this water symbolizes. It has yeah, a right. ha, which is the... Uh, not aha. It has yeah, yeah. a ha, which is a the word for witch. And so oh. the NIV is making a choice as to which witch Peter means. <laughs> and that's fascinating. But I, I think the NIV is correct. I, I mean, probably. It's just, just kind of... I, yeah. I know when we come upon things like this, I've usually heard them before. And I, I had not realized that. 
I think with Second Peter, and you already kind of referenced this, he that he references Paul and how he's hard to understand sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the other thing he says, so verse fifteen. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So, yeah, I think just the other other thing I think is just interesting uh, is just to point out that Peter just very casually includes Paul's letters with the other scriptures. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know. Second Peter, and you reference this, you know, written written later on, a little later on, but like by this point, he can he he can just casually say that Paul's letters are part of Scripture, and presumably the audience, his audience, wouldn't take any issue with that. And so that's just kind of a notable thing of like, it wasn't three hundred years later that they thought, oh, you know, Corinthians is pretty good, maybe mm-hmm. would, you know, but just but very quickly they they were recognizing first century, yeah, these things as as inspired by God. Uh, I'd love to ask your opinion on a verse from the beginning of Second Peter and just what you think it means. So verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That phrase, participate in the divine nature, is a little odd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's unique as far as scripture goes. We see mm-hmm. it here and nowhere else. What does it mean for us to participate in the divine nature or to have koinonia with the divine nature? We know that we are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so we reflect him just by our nature as humans. That's what human nature is, is a reflection of, of the divine. And so I think that on one level, we could say that, that Peter's articulating a restoration of what was always supposed to be the case. But I do think that the incarnation, that, that Yahweh in Jesus became a human man and remains one forever, <laughs> I, I don't think it cha- that does not change God's nature. I think we theologically are committed to have to say that. <laughs> uh-huh. But I think it does that there's an elevation even beyond what Adam and Eve were originally created as. Not to godhood, you know. God became a man, men cannot become gods. <laughs> you know, that, and the scripture is unanimous in that opinion, and that's not what Peter's saying. You know, that word participation, right, koinonia, also in other places translated fellowship. You know, so I think that there's also a sense in which, you know, that, that we've been given everything we need to draw close to be not neighbors of God or distant relatives of God or even grandchildren of God, but like direct children in the house of God, you know, just kind of this, this an, 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 an intimacy piece. And I think as well, we could say, you know, and, and we'll talk about John, the letter, the epistles of John next week, uh, you know, when he talks about that God is love. It's like, that's a, I think a very succinct, succinct kind of statement of what the divine nature is. You know, when you think about the Trinitarian, the Trinity, you know, of like these three persons who exist together always, you know, that when we say God is love, I mean, those those two things are are intimately connected, right? Love has to have an other. The Trinity is the eternal, you know, other, you know, that, that they have each other, so to speak. And so I think it's, it's that as well. Like we are participating, we are being transformed into the same sort of, not more members of the Trinity, but that... We, we also become, you know, really we become love 
again, not in exactly the same way as God because he's still God and we're not, but, but we're participating in that, that relationship. I think the dance of the relationship there that, that we always were supposed to, but I think we, we, uh, are invited back into that. And like I said, I think it's also elevated, you know, part of that. We didn't, we didn't touch on this earlier in, in, can, in the ways that Paul talks about, you know, the people in Corinthians, he talks about that the believers will judge angels or that in Ephesians that, you know, the mystery of salvation has been proclaimed to the powers. And so there is the sense in which, you know, Adam and Eve were created just to rule the earth and the heavenly bodies were created to rule the heavens. heavens. But, you know, I don't think all the heavenly beings, spiritual beings are, are turned evil, but some of them certainly did in different ways. And so I think in the same way that we see the second born son kind of elevated over the firstborn constantly, you know, throughout the story of scripture that we see that again, that human beings are elevated even over the spiritual beings to rule like Jesus. Jesus rules over all of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's a dude. He's God, but he's a dude, you mm-hmm. know. And so in Jesus, you know, uh, we are seated, seated in the heavenly places as well, as Paul says. And so I think this is this is just Peter's way of kind of saying that in different yeah. language. I agree with that completely. It's one of my favorite metaphors for um, the for what we call sanctification and salvation. Um, it is not one I talk about a lot just because it is pretty um, esoteric, but it is, I think it indicates, among other things, agreeing with what you said, the change that happens in us as we draw nearer to him, not nearer as in more saved, but nearer as in becoming more like him. Um, and as we do that, we participate in his divine nature and we are changed, I think, into what he has always meant for us to become. And that's, that's beautiful. So second Peter chapter three, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people, etc., etc., um, that that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. Um, so, is this saying that God is going to completely like blow up His creation? Like it sounds like it sounds like what's being described is you, we see this in movies. Like there's a bomb and it explodes, and this is what it. I mean, it sounds like that's what He's describing. Is that what He's describing? Will the new heavens and new earth, will the, will, the, will the old one be completely destroyed and then wink out of existence and a new one appear? I mean, I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> I feel like I can pretty confidently say I that's think, not what Peter is saying. I think that we know, you know, when Paul talks about resurrection, it's it's a bit of both, right? Like he uses the metaphor of a seed and a plant. It's like, all right, well, this, the, the adult plant is what the seed turned into so i mean there is a continuity there it's the same organism but the the adult plant is i mean besides genetic information almost entirely different than the seed just in terms of its form its structure it's it's whatever else and so i think that i think that that peter may be kind of expressing a similar thought just in a different way you know when we see fire used throughout the scriptures certainly for destruction but also for like refining yes. or, or, or cleaning or you know, transforming or transforming. Yeah. You know, you think back to the burning bush, you know, and there was the bush that was on fire, but was not consumed. 
And so I just say that to say that, yes, I think you're right. Here we are in the nuclear age. We read we read a verse like the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, you know, and we and we we think of, oh, OK, so it's all going to be destroyed. And it's like, well, they didn't they didn't think it's, this is a weird thought, but like they didn't think about fire necessarily in the same way. No. And they did. <laughs> Peter does say destroyed. But again, it, that means. So Paul, my reference for this is when Paul talks about the old and the new creation in a person, right? right? So when anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Um, we see other places Paul talks about the death that comes when we, we become a Christian. We die to self right. and we become alive in Christ. There is a death followed by life. And when he's talking about, when Peter is talking about the creation, He's, he's referencing the same thing. That does not mean, because one of the things this gets used to do then is to discount our responsibility to the creation. Right. Because it's it's meant to just be destroyed anyway. And actually, it meant, it's meant to be redeemed and, and made new. Right. And that is the work we are supposed to be doing. Now, God is going to come and do it all at once. But that does not mean we are not called to be working on that now. Um, well, yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's it's really just an analog to ourselves, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm going to die. So what use is it for me to try and be any better? <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think any conscientious Christian would make that argument. Right. Yet when it comes to our life as a society, you know, as a culture or our life with the other creatures, then it's like, ah, well, it's all going to burn. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> or it's all going to change. Yes. It's all going to be transformed. Yes. Well, you know, and he talks about the flood earlier on in chapter three. And so I think, you know, all right, well, let's think about that. You know, did the flood utterly destroy the heavens and the earth? No. Did it as presented in Genesis? No, it didn't. Was it like a transformation of them? Was the heavens and the earth different after the flood than before the flood? Yes. Yes, yes they were. But they weren't. It wasn't a, a it's not a picture of utter destruction, you know, followed by a brand new planet. You know, and well, you know, ancient people weren't necessarily thinking in terms of planets, but you know, a brand new environment or whatever else. And so I think that that uh, that would be in Peter's mind as well, you know, that, that maybe we should, we should think of transformation. Uh, and in verse 7, earlier in chapter 3, he says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You know, it's just like so. Destruction is a part of that. I just think it's not. It's not the total. It's not the totality of of what Peter's envisioning here. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.